Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us master journalist and author Jeffrey Wheatcroft. And today we are discussing his newest book, Churchill's Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill, published by Norton. Welcome, Jeffrey Wheatcroft. Well, good day. Uh, Why did you write this book? Because I wanted to answer a number of questions which perplexed me. I mean, I grew up, my life has been spent in Churchill's shadow, the early part of my life when he was still alive. Indeed, I was a child when he was prime minister for the second time in 1951 to 55. And I remember vividly his funeral in 1965. Um, And and, and I could not have foreseen then just how remarkable his afterlife would be and his posthumous career. And uh, Churchill is, as we all know, invoked continually by me, but since my book was published, he's always been compared um, with other political leaders or other political leaders want to be compared with him, of whom President Zelensky is the latest example since my book was published. Um, but I was trying to address, first of all, a question. Um, it was put very well by a great historian, um, the late uh, Sir Michael Howard, a revered friend of mine who died two and a half years ago, just after his 97th birthday, <clears throat> forgive me, and who was a very eminent military historian, having himself, <clears throat> having himself served in the Second War and won the military cross at Salerno leading his uh, platoon of the Coldstream Guards, and he wrote um, the words which uh, are ever present for me. The problem for the historian is not, as so many Americans seem to think, why Winston Churchill was ignored for so long, but how it was that a man with such a dubious background and such a disastrous track record could have emerged in 1940 as the saviour of his country. Now, that's my first question. The second question is, why did the war not go better for Churchill? And that is to say, he ended the war in 1945 on the uh, victorious side. Hitler had lost, but whether Churchill had won is another matter. He said he did not become prime minister to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire, but that's exactly what he did. And the consequences of the war, in which he did heroically lead his country, uh, were in many ways very somber for, for, the, for the British. And then the final question was, why has Churchill um, become a universal oracle of virtue and wisdom uh, since his death, uh, who is, as I've just said, continually invoked again and again and again, quite apart from the fact that Churchill did have such a very 
checkered career himself, um, it is an observable fact that on every single occasion when his name and the names as well of appeasement in Munich in particular have been invoked, it has always led to disaster. I could give you a long list. What do you mean when you call Churchill a great survivor and a great storyteller? Well, that is uh, uh, something which is entirely obvious, but, but in a way only dawned on me that the that although the war had turned out in many ways unfavorably for Churchill, I mean, that is to say, I mean, he said in 1940, my aim is victory, however long and hard the road may be, victory at all costs. Well, five years later, that the costs turned out to include uh, half of Europe under Stalin's domination and England and the British Empire in uh, financial dependency of the United States, which was very far from what Churchill Patriot wanted. Um, but he had this great resource, or two resources in 1945. First of all, he was the survivor, because most of the leaders of the Second World War were off the stage, um, not only in 1945, was Mussolini shot by partisans and did Hitler shoot himself. But before that, President Roosevelt had died. And that left, well, the Japanese leaders who, didn't, who were never going to give their, their version of events. Um, left Stalin, who was a, a silent riddle and was never going to, despite the ingenious um, speculations of some novelists, um, Stalin never wrote any diary or memoir. Let the goal, of course, Charles de Gaulle, the French leader, who did write a memoir 10 years after the war. But at the time the war ended, Churchill was, in the title of an exceptionally good book by David Reynolds, In Command of History. Uh, Professor Reynolds' book is about Churchill and the writing of his enormous six-volume book called The Second World War. And Churchill imposed his version of history, his version of that war, to a quite remarkable extent. I mean, it took generations uh, for us to unravel and to some extent deconstruct the Churchillian version. What influence did Churchill's early military career have on him as a politician? Well, it, it obviously um, um, played a very large part in his life because... Um, uh, it, it was, for one thing, it was extremely unusual. I mean, uh, I can make a comparison with, I mean, in, in many European countries, there were political leaders who had been military heroes first from Napoleon on, um, uh, like Boulanger at the end of the 19th century, the man on the horse. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that from uh, the time of Lincoln's assassination until 1904, every Republican candidate but one for the presidency in the United States had previously been a, a, an officer of the Union Army in the Civil War. Whereas in England, between uh, the resignation of the Duke of Wellington in the 1830s and Churchill's appointment in 1940, no British Prime Minister had ever served as a soldier before. And Churchill's military background, it was, first of all, it was quite remarkable by any standards because he, he, when he was 
20, he celebrated his 21st birthday in Cuba, reporting on the patriotic rebellion there against Spain, which was a precursor to the Spanish-American War. Uh, he then fought and observed, but fought in as well, the, uh, a punitive expedition against Afghanistan. It's rather eerie, by the way, how much of Churchill's early life would be echoed more than 100 years later when British as well as American soldiers were fighting in Afghanistan again. He uh, took part in the Sudan War in 1898 and the Battle of Omdurman, which was really more of a massacre. And then he went as a war correspondent to cover the Boer War in 1899. And this was, this was truly unusual for any young Englishman or anyone from any country to have seen quite so, so much fighting by then. But it wasn't by any means an advantage to him politically, because especially after he, he was elected to Parliament in 1900 as a Tory, like his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, before him, um, and then in 1904, he bolted from the Tories and joined the Liberals ostensibly over the question of free trade, although cynics thought there was, it was more to do with self-advancement. And, and in the next 20 years, when he was uh, a Liberal, uh, very much uh, in more than name to begin with, but in, in name by the end, um, uh, he was he was held in considerable suspicion by his own party because the Liberal Party was deeply pacific and, and, and indeed until August 1914 was hostile to the idea of fighting a European war. And Churchill had to contend with that reputation. It also had a, an undoubted effect on him, for better or worse, and I don't think it was for better, which is that he came to believe, because of, he had taken part in these far-flung wars, that he himself was a, a great military authority and a, um, a, an outstanding strategist, but he had the opportunity in two world wars to disprove that um, with uh, unhappy consequences. How responsible was Churchill for the Dardanelles debacle? How important was it? No, no, how responsible was he for it? How responsible, I beg your pardon, how responsible for it? Well, the answer is not wholly responsible. Um, it was the work of, um, obviously, the British cabinet and the British military leadership. But Churchill had very strongly advocated it. And um, when it went horribly wrong, I mean, you know the saying that success has many parents, but failure is an orphan. And in the case of the Dardanelles or Gallipoli campaign, it became a one-parent child, and Churchill was saddled, not least by David Lloyd George, his former and future comrade, politically speaking. Says Churchill was saddled with the blame and forced to resign in the, in the fall of 1915, which he atoned for by going off to the Western Front and serving as a battalion commander. Why did Lloyd George bring Churchill back in from the wilderness in 1917 by making him Minister of Munitions? Because uh, I think I would say for several reasons. First of all, um, uh, he, uh, he knew very well, because they had been close comrades ten years earlier, both on the one hand how gifted Churchill was and what his formidable capacity was as... Um, uh, an administrator, which he, he did demonstrate in the next two years, um, 
but also because he knew that Churchill meant trouble. And um, it was rather like Lyndon Johnson's um, phrase that there's a certain kind of man you'd rather have him on the inside pissing out than on the outside pissing in. And that was what Lloyd George thought about Churchill and said so to the Tory leaders, though they disagreed. But is that the reason, actually, why Baldwin made Churchill Chancellor in 1924? Well, I, that's a great mystery, in, in a way. I mean, the one theory is that after the turbulent political events of the early 1920s, when Churchill was still a liberal in the coalition government headed by Lloyd George, although after the 1918 election it was predominantly Tory in composition, um, and then came the crisis in 1922 over the Charnak um, episode, which precipitated the fall of the Lloyd George government and the general election, in which Winston Churchill not only lost his ministerial office, but he lost his parliamentary seat. And over the next two years, he managed to creep back into the Tory fold. Um, he, the so-called coalitionists, like Churchill and like Curzon and uh, like Austin Chamberlain and Effie Smith or Birkenhead, Churchill's great drinking companion, were brought back into government when Baldwin formed his, uh, his new ministry in late 1924. But, but uh, one view of the matter is that they were all given deliberately unsuitable jobs. Um, but David Chamberlain um, was in, in the wrong job. Um, Birkenhead, who was a great lawyer, though a very dubious character in many ways, was made Secretary of State for India. And Churchill uh, was made Chancellor of the Exchequer or Finance Minister. Well, everything about Churchill's entire life, not least his, his hair-raising personal finances, would have suggested that he was the wrong man for that job. And even he later said that he hadn't been a very successful Chancellor, which was true. Why do you say that in 1929, Churchill, quote, discovered America, unquote? Well, because he had been to America twice, or that was more, literal three times. He stopped in New York on his way to Cuba and back again in 1895 for the, to cover the value I mentioned. Then he went in late uh, 1900 on a lecture tour uh, of North America, um, um, United States and Canada, uh, lecture tours being the, the kind of television documentaries of their age, or or perhaps chat shows combined, and he made a good deal of money doing that. But after 1901, when he returned to England, he never went back to America for nearly 30 years. And in 1929, the at the general election, Labour returned to office for the second time, they were in a minority government. And Churchill, really rather happy to be free of the cares of office, went off on a most luxurious, enviably luxurious um, journey to Canada and the United States. And it was not only luxurious, but it was very lucrative because he um, met various rich men who could help him, and notably William Randolph Hearst with whom he stayed in, in California. And he uh, had plenty of um, well-paid journalistic contracts because he lived by his pen. Uh, and um, 
through the 1930s, he was a very highly paid journalist and author. And um, it, 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 before, before 1929, Churchill's relationship with America or his attitude towards it was very equivocal. I mean, he um, believed that say, should have entered the war in 1915, which of course showed a complete ignorance of American politics, but because that could never have happened. But he thought that the Americans should have um, compensated for their, their very modest casualties of the Great War by being more generous financially after it. And in 1928, uh, when he was still Chancellor of the Exchequer, but had grown restless and wanted to move to become foreign secretary, uh, his wife Clementine said that there was an obvious difficulty in his becoming foreign secretary, your known hostility to America. And this is the man who later invented the concept of a special relationship. But it was quite true. Churchill was hostile to America politically during the 1920s. And while I'm not suggesting that he changed his position on a very important political question simply because of his um, personal financing, it is a fact that after that uh, lucrative tour of America, um, uh, he uh, discovered America as a, uh, as a potential friend and ally of England, which he, uh, something he hadn't previously seen. When I say that it was lucrative, by the way, um, it would have been really lucrative if um, his visit to or just about the point when he departed from America in the fall of 1929 hadn't coincided with the Wall Street crash, in which he lost an enormous amount of money. Why was Churchill opposed to home rule for India, and why, in the words of Duff Cooper, did this cost Churchill a lot politically in the subsequent uh, period of uh, uh, his political career? Well, Churchill was, he was a self-taught imperialist. He had developed a great love for the British Empire, which of course was rather boilerplate in those days for British politicians, or at any rate, the Tory politicians, not necessarily for liberals. And um, having gone to India as a cavalry subaltern in the 1890s, he believed himself to be a complete authority on India, um, which was absurd because he, he had met, met very few Indians indeed, apart from servants. Um, and um, he developed as well a considerable aversion to them. I mean, much, much later in life, he said, the Hindus are a foul race with a foul religion. Um, but he nevertheless uh, stuck obstinately to the view that the, um, the agreeable but primitive races of India were quite unfitted for any kind of self-government. And again, there were some who suspected that this was a cynical maneuver on his part, but he took up the cause of opposing the, the, the British government by this time, um, the, the government of... Um, First of all, Ramsay MacDonald, when he was Labour Prime Minister, and then when he became leader of a so-called national government, in harness with uh, Stanley Baldwin, the Tory, um, they both were, were proposing to conciliate Indian nationalism and to try, to some extent, to grant a very modest degree of self-government to, to India through the provinces. And Churchill took up, as his um, might and main, as his burning desire, a ferocious campaign to block any measure of self-government for India from 1931 onwards, and that was what dominated his political life for the next few years. Duff Cooper said that his 
Tory politician and a friend of Churchill said that his taking up this cause opposed to Indian nationalism was the most unfortunate event of the interwar years. And what Duff Cooper meant by that was that Churchill very gravely damaged his reputation, obviously with the left, with um, Labour and Liberals, uh, because of his quasi-racist, imperialist intransigence, but even with more moderate Tories like Baldwin himself, who was trying, along with Ronald Macdonald, to, to find some solution to the Indian question. And, 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 and by the time Churchill found a cause more worthy of his eloquence, that is to say, opposing Hitler and German nationalism, his reputation had been very gravely damaged by his um, campaigning against Mahatma Gandhi and Indian nationalism. Oh, why was Churchill pro-Zionist? Oh, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because he um, had been taken in, taken by the, the Zionist cause. He'd been excited by it from an, uh, quite an early point. In 1905, uh, when Churchill had bolted from the Tories to the Liberals the previous year, as I've said, um, he, he had to find a new parliamentary seat um, because his previous one was solidly Tory. He, wasn't, he was going to be defeated if he ran there again. And the, the, the seat he found was northwest Manchester, which was uh, a seat which had quite a large number of Jewish voters. Uh, that, that was one consideration. But he also, and, and Churchill did, had been campaigning against the Russian pogroms um, uh, to his great credit and against the Tory government's aliens bill, which was designed to restrict Jewish immigration. And he, at a meeting in late 1905, he met Heim Weizmann, who was then a research chemist at Manchester University, hence uh, both being in Manchester at the same time. And uh, he, uh, uh, he, he uh, Weizmann was an, uh, an, a very busy Zionist activist at that point. He later became leader of the Zionist movement and finally became president of the State of Israel. And Churchill was captivated by this idea of returning the Jewish people to the, the promised land. And... Um, his, his, his attitude towards it, I should say, shifted considerably over the years, but then his attitude to absolutely everything shifted over the years. Uh, and by the 1920s, when he was, colon early 20s, when he was colonial secretary, he became, although he visited um, what had become British mandatory Palestine after the Great War, we took over responsibility for it. Uh, he, um, and, and he was very much impressed by the Zionist settlers at the same time, he was exasperated by the continual demands being made on the British by the Zionists, who, who as Churchill said, seemed to think that um, the whole might of the British Empire should be used to suppress the Palestinian Arabs and allow the Zionist settlement to continue. He went on um, uh, espousing the Zionist cause through the 30s, uh, 1920s and 30s. But he did so, unfortunately, for Zionists and possibly for Israelis today, in very stark terms, in 1937, um, while giving evidence to a British commission investigating the troubles in Palestine, uh, Churchill was asked whether he thought that an injustice was being done by the Palestinian Arabs by 
when they were as they were replaced by the Zionist settlers. And he said he didn't think anything of the kind. He didn't think, in any case, that any injustice had been done when the American Red Indians and the Australian Aborigines, to use his own terminology, had been uh, replaced by European settlers. It was no more than the natural advance of history when a, a, a backward race was supplanted by a stronger, or in Churchill's exact phrase, a higher-grade race. And he believed that that was happening in Palestine, and it was that it was the, uh, the natural course of history, because um, the Jews, in his view, were a higher-grade race than the Palestinian Arabs. That is not something Benjamin Netanyahu uh, used to keep a bust of. Churchill in his office uh, as Prime Minister of Israel and, and liked to, 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 to bandy Churchill's name. I didn't think that even he would have wanted to quote those words about the higher grade race. Why do you uh, state that it's, quote, most misleading, unquote, Churchill's view of himself as a John the Baptist figure crying in the wilderness as per uh, the, his opposition to appeasement? Why do I want to think about it? Uh, why do you characterize it as, quote, most misleading, unquote, this view of Churchill? Well, it, was made misleading. it was misleading because this, this whole idea of the wilderness years, which is a, a, an echo of the Bible, of course, and, and uh, the, the prophet, the, pro, the unheard prophet preaching in the wilderness, um, uh, is, is in one really absurd because it, it's just that Churchill had... Um, was some obscure person who had um, no means of making his message heard. But in fact, in the 1930s, Churchill was one of the half-dozen most prominent British politicians of his age. He was was one, I think, of only four people in the House of Commons who had been cabinet ministers before 1914. He was an enormously widely read and very highly paid journalist. And this idea that he was uh, in the wilderness is, is a, a self-serving myth. I mean, he, uh, if, um, if, 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 he, he didn't persuade the entire British people of, of his case. That wasn't necessarily because um, he was an unheard prophet. People heard him and really disagreed. Why didn't Churchill understand that FDR was, in fact, uh, an Anglophobe? Well, I, I'm, I'm only quoting American historians who have said that FDR was one of the most Anglophobic presidents in the 20th century, if not the most. I mean, Roosevelt very much wanted, um, when the war began in 1939, and for the next two years, Roosevelt, uh, like most Americans, did not want Hitler to defeat England, but like most Americans as well, he did not want the United States to take part in the war as long as possible, as long as it could possibly be avoided. And, and he was not—he was not a friend of England. I mean, like Churchill, I think, deluded himself because uh, Roosevelt was. Uh, very much a wasp of wasps. He was a patrician, uh, uh, old, elite American. But that didn't by any means equate with being fond of England, politically speaking. And uh, Roosevelt was opposed to the British Empire.
remember, and told Churchill this rather too often during the war when they met. And um, Roosevelt, when when Churchill said, um, I have not become His Majesty's First Minister in order to to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire, Roosevelt might have replied that he wasn't president in order to preserve the British Empire. Why was Churchill's view of Stalin so erratic? Well, it is his view of Russia that was erratic. I mean, in 19, from the October Revolution in 1917, Churchill was consumed by an intense hatred of the Bolsheviks, and he used very lurid language about the foul baboonery of Bolshevism and about their um, hideous campaign of murder. He wasn't wrong, of course. I mean, it was, the Bolshevik regime was extremely bloody. Um, and he, he went on uh, using the same kind of language and rather more regrettably in the 1920s. Uh, he praised Mussolini to the skies from having, um, for having saved Italy from the horrors of Leninism. And he remained uh, a very ardent opponent of Soviet Russia until the late 1930s when he began to meet uh, Maisky, who was the Russian ambassador in London, because Churchill could see that he didn't like the idea of of, um, Russia fighting Germany in one sense, because he could see for himself, he could guess for himself that if that were the case, then then Stalin would want a price for having fought the war and defeated Germany, as proved to be so. But uh, he was um, more and more consumed by the belief that Germany must be resisted and then defeated. And so, really quite comically in a way, by um, 1941, by June 1941, Churchill, the passionate anti-Bolshevik, anti-communist, was uh, embracing Stalin as an ally. That was rhetorically speaking. From uh, August of the following year, he was embracing Stalin in in person. And um, they had a very (laughs) curious and awkward relationship for the next four years. Um, But um, oddly enough, uh, Churchill rather warmed to Stalin in person. Despite the fact that Stalin had killed far more people than even Lenin had ever killed. And and, and Churchill once said to Anthony Eden, I can't help it, I like that man. What explains the curious afterlife of Churchill's celebrity in um, the years since he died in 1965, in particular in America? Well, that is a question I've tried to address and tried to answer, but I'm not sure that I have answered it satisfactorily because I don't, I don't quite know what the answer is. And the fact is, Churchill has become the greatest of all American heroes. You know, he's, 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 he is revered by many Americans more than Washington, Lincoln, or FDR. Um, and he's after a foreign leader, uh, but he has become uh, the, 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 uh, the object of the, of the Churchill cult, which uh, it's not a phrase I invented, it's one reviewer of my book seemed to think so, but uh, it, 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 the Churchill cult has been observable for very many years past, and people have been writing about it again and again. There are Churchill societies all the way across America, 
and uh, politicians think they can never go wrong by American politicians think they can never go wrong by 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 citing Churchill by quoting him and that reached him. Ronald Reagan mentioned him in his first inaugural in 1981 and um, 20 or more years later uh, George W. Bush um, tried uh, harder than any president before to don the mantle of Churchill and he would quote Churchill while standing in front of the bust of Churchill in the Oval Office in the White House and, and Churchill has become the man to whom all American leaders have tended to turn um, as I say, it's a, it's a slight mystery as to why this should be so and why, the, they, why Churchill should have become a, a, a greater American leader in the eyes of more recent American politicians than, in, than any actual American. Does Enoch Powell's dictum that all political uh, lives end in failure apply to Churchill? Um, yes, I think so. I mean, in one sense, at any rate, I'm, in, in one larger sense, no, because he did lead his country through the war, and the war ended with the defeat of Hitler and then of Japan. Um, and uh, in that sense, it was a very uh, great triumph. But Churchill, as I've said already, could see for himself that the consequences of the war were very unhappy for the British. That is, the financial collapse of the country and the fact that half of Europe was in Stalin's grip, or very much uh, something for which Churchill bore a very direct responsibility. And then he, he, I do strongly feel, and I feel that Max Hastings, the English military historian writing in Bloomberg News recently, said that he agreed with me about this. I strongly feel that Churchill should have done what his wife, Clementine, begged him to do and retired from political leadership in 1945 when he was already over 70 and when um, his reputation was at a, a pinnacle that he could never have descended from. His, the, the 10 years he spent in politics after the war did nothing whatever to add to his repute and he was leader of the opposition until 1951 and then came back as prime minister from 1951 to 55, and um, it was really quite a sad story because by the 1950s his, his faculties were declining without any question. He had one honourable reason, and and and, and I, I, even Churchill, the Churchill uh, fan club, his admirers tend to admit that his second government, the 1951-1955 Conservative government, which he led, wasn't a success in, in almost any way. Churchill had one, one honourable reason for wanting to come back as Prime Minister, because he believed he was more and more horrified, having seen the, and been to some extent responsible for the horrors of the Second World, or the destruction of cities by bombing. He was appalled by the atomic bomb, and dismayed by the prospect that the, the whole world might be obliterated in a nuclear war. And uh, he believed that he could re-establish his intimate friendship with his, his old comrade, Joseph Stalin, who was still, of course, alive in 1951. And for, for 18 months, Churchill believed that he could 
um, meet Stalin, the two of them could avert possible destruction of the whole world. Of course, it never happened because he didn't meet Stalin. And um, um, uh, there was no end to the nuclear arms race, rather the opposite. Although Churchill at that time um, took a, a view which is almost relevant today because of the question of Ukraine, apart from the actual horrors going on there at the moment, the question of what should happen to Ukraine and whether it should be neutralized. And when Stalin in uh, 1952 um, proposed, because, of course, um, Germany had been divided after the war into four sectors and the three sectors controlled by the Western allies, the British, American, and French sectors had been brought together as the Federal Republic, whereas the Russian sector became the so-called German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. And Stalin proposed that Germany should be reunited, uh, but neutralized, and so it wouldn't be a member of NATO. And um, some early cold warriors thought that this was an obvious ruse on Stalin's part, which should be treated with contempt. But Churchill was very anxious to, to, to discuss it, and he, he viewed it favorably, with, with one comical consequence, by the way, that um, he was attacked in the United States Senate as an appeaser himself. Isn't it true, though, that um, most of Churchill's American devotees rather ignore his search in the, his post-war government for a summit with the Soviet Union? Yes. I mean, you know, if, they knew, if his American devotees knew more about him, there are many things they would um, be startled by. I mean, he was a very strong advocate of, of public welfare and social security from the, the liberal government before 1914, in which he helped um, create... Uh, a number of institutions of social security, labor exchanges, and helped bring in old age pension. Uh, and, and in 1945, uh, he spoke of the need to have a national health service. And at that election in 1945, labor won a landslide victory and created the national health service that we have in this country. But, but, uh, but creating a national health service was part of the Tory platform as well in the 1945 general election, and Churchill was as, as strong an advocate of it as anybody. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Uh, my view would be that although Churchill really was an heroic and noble leader, uh, he, he was not a saint or a universal oracle, that he was very, very often in the wrong, and that uh, his record is far too complicated and complex for him to be cited, as he always is, um, by the Churchillians, as the man who, whose example should always be followed. Uh, there are some American politicians who say they address every problem with the question, what would Jesus do? Which I don't think offers a great deal of help, as a matter of fact, in practical politics. Um, but what would Winston do is no better. We don't know what he would do. And um, for all of 
Zelensky's echoing into Churchill's 1940s speeches, the, the lessons of supposed lessons of one historical event or one historical era when applied to another are almost always misleading and sometimes very dangerous. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Jeffrey Wheatcroft, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you once again, Jeffrey Wheatcroft. Well, thank you. That was very enjoyable.